west of Arkham, the hills rise wild. There are valleys with deep woods that no axe is ever cut. There are dark, narrow glens where the trees slope fantastically. Where thin brooklets trickle without ever having caught the glimpse of sunlight. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen. And it's a show where we talk about movies. And specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 125. And our movie this week was the 2019 H.P. Lovecraft adaptation starring Nicolas Cage, Color Out of Space. And here to talk with me about it because he had not seen it before is Charlie. Charlie, how you doing? I'm I'm doing all right. I mean, you know, I'm a little more insane after watching this movie, but I think that's part of it, of course. Yes. Uh, so for those of you that are new to the show, uh, every August I like to celebrate Cageapalooza because Nick Cage is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, and so every August, every uh, we we cover nothing but Nick Cage movies, whether I've never seen it before or my guest hasn't. And so we're kicking it off this this year, uh, Cageapalooza 2021, because. We are recording this on August 1st. Color Out of Space. So, Charlie, you like Lovecraftian stories. I know at one point you were you were kind of running, uh, you were running a Starfinder campaign that I was part of that had some Lovecraftian sort of uh, feel to it, correct? Yeah, we ran the, a little bit of a horror space future campaign thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to say that that was about 50% successful. Uh, you guys seem to enjoy it about half the time. And um, so I'll, I'll credit that whole campaign as success. Sure. Um, so, but you told me earlier today that you haven't read Lovecraft himself um, so much that, as... That is correct. I've not read a specific Lovecraft story penned by Lovecraft before. Mm-hmm. But you are uh, into the whole kind of cosmic horror... Um, Lovecraftian style mythos, right? Yes, uh, the the mythos intrigues me. It's it's cool. It's unique. I own um, Elder Sign, dice rolling game that's set in the Arkham universe, and it's I, I love the lore because it's cool and it's creepy. And oh, I looked too far into into space and saw something that looked back at me, and now <laughs> I'm a little mad for it. Right. Um, so so this is based on a short story uh, called The Color Out of Space, spelled with a U, um, by H.P. Lovecraft. I think it was published in 1927, I want to say. And so this movie is based on that short story. Uh, They Obviously, they adapted it. They stretch it out a little bit. It's an hour and 50 minutes long. Um, And it was written and directed by Richard Stanley. Now, Richard Stanley's last feature film prior to this was in 1996. And he didn't actually finish it. He was fired uh, after, depending on the account you want to you want to go by, one to four days on set before he was fired from the movie. And that was the Island of Doctor Moreau. Um, <laughs> four days. Wow. Yeah. So uh, he's had something of a checkered past, and and I've read a few things I'll talk about later on. 
Um, that had me a little bit concerned, but but he he championed this. He had been wanting to work on this uh, particular adaptation, I believe. From what I researched, 2011 was about when he really started to kind of go hardcore with it, and eventually Nicolas Cage got involved, and we got a movie. So my first question for you is, uh, aside from maybe feeling uh, like your brain is itchy afterwards, um, what did you think of it overall as a film? I, uh, cinematically, it was actually very beautiful. Uh, the, the, there were a couple of scenes that I didn't really get that they lingered on, like an empty staircase for five seconds. I'm like, that doesn't need to be there. <laughs> but um, the movie was a good movie. I enjoyed the experience. Um, everything was very well shot. The physical effects in that movie were fantastic. Yes. Yeah. And I, I do want to definitely touch on that uh, a lot more in depth um, because I think I think that's important to a film like this uh, for those to work out. So because this is Cagepalooza and because Nick Cage is uh, the main character, the, the, the father figure in this movie, we have to talk about him. N- Nicolas Cage is an interesting actor because he can be really good and really compelling or he can be completely batshit crazy. Um, oftentimes does both of those in a single movie. What did you think of a Nicholas Cage being in this and then his performance on top of that? Like, could you see somebody else in that role? Did you like him uh, in particular? Was he a drawing uh, kind of aspect of it? Um, just sort of, wh- what was that like for you? Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, Cage does crazy well, and I think he did a very good job of flipping back and forth between his sane state and his insane state in this movie with very little outside cues to the other characters in the movie and even the audience. Like it was really subtle when he snapped Mm -hmm. and then he was back and he was the dad again, but then he snapped and he was this crazy entity that was maybe channeling his father. It, it, It went back and forth and it was like a, a light switch, just like suddenly you're crazy, suddenly you're not. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was very well portrayed. I don't think he was my favorite character in the movie, but he was a very compelling character in the movie. No, he wasn't my favorite character. We'll get to that in a a little bit. But I I thought I, okay, so obviously I'm a Nick Cage fan. um, and, And I liked him in this. I thought that his performance... Look, it's not an Oscar-winning performance, but you're not going to get that in a movie like this. Um, you just, you, and that's less a, uh, that's less saying that the performance isn't good, and more just saying like what an Oscar-winning performance is like. That's not the type of thing you get in a performance in a film like this one. But what we got, I feel, was a compelling performance on a cage that he got to both go crazy and have fun, which he gets to do on certain movies like Vampire's Kiss or, or other things, but he was also at times kind of reined in um, like he was in Bringing Out the Dead, for instance, um, which I, I still say is one of my more uh, underrated Cage performances because I think he was really good in that, and that's a testament to Scorsese as a director. I, I feel like Richard Stanley got a good mix of of subtle moments the there's there's the scene with him and Jolie Richardson on the porch after dinner when the kids are cleaning up 
that is an example of Nick Cage actually acting really well, right? Like I buy a hundred percent that the two of the, these two people have a, a good relationship because here is Jolie Richardson, who uh, is playing his wife, Teresa. She's a cancer survivor. Um, and Teresa, we don't ever, we don't get a ton of backstory about what happened to her exactly but we know that there was there was cancer she's surviving it they've moved out to this house from the city but their performance in that scene i like i bought them as this couple that just get through things and they they stick together really well and i thought cage was great in that because you got a little there's the goofiness of like him saying you know oh, i was i was always a leg man and and you know the whole like oh it's kind of kinky thing but then at the same like there's a genuineness to him in that scene that i think is really great yeah, he, he very, very obviously still loves his wife, and his wife is still getting over the fact that she feels ugly and disgusting and unlovable. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, no, baby, I'm here. Like, yep. we're together. I love you. Yeah. And then, you know, later on in the movie, you get uh, a straight-up cage freakout, a uh, little cage rage when he's in the car, just beating the ceiling and beating on the on the steering wheel of the car. So you got kind of both ends of the spectrum of this, and I like it. I liked him just overall. I thought he was really, really fun. He was having fun with the role. Yeah, there's moments that are are like overly goofy, but it sort of fits. Like when he goes crazy and uh, and the characters show up towards the end, um, and he's he's kind of muttering to himself, and he's like, as they leave to go check on something else horrific ha- happening in the house, he's sort of like, "You want a drink? I'm I'm gonna go have a drink now." You know, and he's, he's constantly picking at the scabs, the, the rash on his arms. Like it could be to some people, they're going to see stuff like that and they're going to discount the performance. But I, I, I just, I don't do that. I, I liked him. Like nobody does that kind of just out there weird, like cage can do. I mean, there's a line in this movie where he's, he it's literally, true. he just gets up and he's like, all right, it's time to go milk the alpaca. Like what? <laughs> you know, that's. Yeah. So there's just there's there's something to a Nick Cage performance. Um, now there's definitely I've seen movies where he's clearly phoning it in and just there for a paycheck. But this doesn't feel like one of those. This feels like he really put in the work to to get in the headspace of this character of Nathan, and I liked him. I just I liked him in this movie. I I, I agree with that. He was very good in this. So now I have to ask then, you said he's not your favorite character in the movie. Who is your favorite character in the movie? My favorite character in the movie is actually the daughter. Okay. I, I enjoyed, I thought that she was, I actually thought that she was the um, protagonist of the movie until the very end of the movie when it was obviously not her and it was shown to be the other guy. Sure, yeah. I, and, and the movie really is, in a lot of ways, told from her point of view. Um, and, and she is sort of our protagonist for most of the film, right up until the ending, which we're going to get to the ending because it's a little, little strange. And, uh, I will say at this point, spoiler alert, but that's every episode. So if you haven't figured that part out by now, um, just keep listening to the show. We spoil the movies. Uh, Madeline Arthur was, uh, was her name and, um, she would have been right about 2021 when she made this. She's a Canadian actress. She was good. I really did like her. Um, she pulled off the kind of gothy Wiccan character fr- fairly well. I did think uh, it was pretty funny that the the witchy character in the movie is also the one that wants bottled water and McDonald's. Yeah, you you mentioned that. And then, like, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny. 
Like it's it's just it, that's that's really funny given that prior to the meteorite hitting and the color showing up, the water should have been fine. Like there's nothing to really make me think that there's anything wrong with the water. I don't I don't know if you got any kind of an impression of that. Like there was issues with the water prior to it. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't get anything that there was anything going on until the meteorite landed. Okay, I didn't either. But I just, which is why I just find it funny that she's like, "Why can't we just get?" She's she's in this weird mix of like wants to be sort of an almost Earth child, uh, Wiccan kind of stereotype, but then is also very much just a young person that wants their McDonald's and live in the city. And a lot of that probably is because she's lived her entire life in the city till the last year. Because uh, from what I understand, we're supposed to believe that they've been in that house for roughly a year. So, but but interestingly, like her brother, uh, Benny, played by Brendan Meyer, um, just seemed to not really mind being up in the woods in the middle of nowhere. Because um, he just sort of... Well, he had a weed guy, so he was fine. True. Yeah, he... It's interesting because he's kind of this like you know stoner dude, but he also sort of is just kind of going through life like yeah, I guess eventually I'm just going to take over this farm now. Like that's going to be my thing when my dad passes away, I get the farm, so I'll just get by until then and smoke a bunch and hang out with uh, with Ezra, um, who was my favorite character in the movie. I just Tommy Chong is is awesome. And it's so much fun to see him show up, but it's like a perfect casting for a character and a perfect role for an actor. Yeah, it, like he he just it looked like he didn't even really have to practice to do that. But the interesting thing is, like, yes, he is totally stoned out of his gourd and he's way out there and he's totally just like an old stoner hippie. But at the same time. He's he gets what's going on and he's very grounded too, which is I think what I liked about Ezra is he wasn't he wasn't there for like he wasn't used for comic relief and not that there is a whole lot of comic relief in this movie, but like easily that character could have been just a straight stereotype of of all those things, but done in like a not necessarily a mean spirited way, but not a um like in a in a in a funny way. And he wasn't really played for laughs, like he was just no. this old stoner. No, it, it, his character was not. Uh, ah, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't. Uh, my brain has not been cooperating with me lately. But it, a character. That's that's the. He, it wasn't a caricature. Yes, right. And and the, and the script wasn't punching down either. It wasn't looking down on this character of Ezra. He was just like he lived. He was a, he was the squatter as they uh, talked about. But he also had been um, an electrician and he set up solar power. So all his stuff was powered and he was off the grid and he had his old reel to reel and he just liked to hang out in the woods and smoke and drink coffee. He was always offering everybody Java when they came in, uh, which was funny to me. Like I just, I just liked him. He could have been in the movie more, but at the same time, like I feel like you don't want to overuse that character either. You had mentioned when we were watching it, cause we, we did end up watching this together and, uh, and you'd said like, well, they get Tommy Chong for this. And then he says like two lines and he's out of the movie. And then he had another scene. Yeah, because he just showed up and then he was just gone. Yeah. But, you know, thankfully he got one more scene after that one. Because um, we had the scene with the kid and Ward and him. Uh, Benny and Ward going to see him. And then Ward going back and talking to him a second time. 
Um, and then he's technically has a third scene, but he's not really there. <laughs> he's uh, he's a no, corpse. but we do get to hear him monologuing creepy words into a you know from a recording. So oh yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that was that's a, a effective um, bit of uh, atmosphere they had going on there. Um, he had some he had some great lines. He had the great uh, bit talking about how they're under the floor or under the ground or whatever, you know. And he, he like he knows something's going on, but he can't articulate it right. Um, so yeah, I just I liked him. I liked that character. Um, and then there was Elliot Knight played Ward Phillips. Now Ward Phillips in the movie is our narrator. He opens the movie with a, a quote you heard at the top of the show. Um, and he ends the movie, and he, he shows up in a few few scenes here and there. Uh, now, the name Ward Phillips is a great H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, Easter egg, right? Because Howard Phillips Lovecraft, so we get Ward Phillips. Um, and he's a hydrologist surveyor. So in the original story, um, the framing device for it is that a surveyor is showing up at uh, at this location, and it's just this gray heath or heap of some kind. It's a, it's just there's nothing there. Basically, what we see at the end of the movie, and uh, he's told the story of what happened by somebody. So they sort of combined those two roles into the Ward Phillips role in this movie, and made him a hydrologist who's checking out the water table because they're going to put in a hydroelectric dam. And, um, and I, I thought the kid, uh, I thought Elliot Knight was, was pretty good. Like I enjoyed him. Um, he could have almost been in things more in some ways. It's not the story they were trying to tell. So I kind of get why he wasn't, but I liked him. He, he, he was very good. I, I'll agree with that. He was good in the movie. Um, his character, um, actually pushed the story forward a little bit or, or was a little more exposition from the outside because mm-hmm. he very clearly wasn't partaking in any of the drinking of the tainted water. Right. That's very true. Uh, last one I wanted to mention was um, Julian Hilliard, who played uh, Jack Jack, Jack Gardner. Um, he was, you know, child actors, it's always kind of a roll of the dice. Are they going to be a Haley Joel Osment in the sixth sense, or are we going to get, uh, I don't know, um, a, a kid who just doesn't look like they belong there. I would put him in between. I thought he was good. It wasn't, it wasn't a ton of, he was time. good in his role, but mm-hmm. his role wasn't really, it didn't require him to, uh, like emote or act a whole lot. He just had to like sit and stare and whistle and, have yeah. a far off look. And now I'm not saying that that was super easy for anybody to do well. Mm-hmm. He did it well, but he's not like Haley Joel Osment where you can give him, you know, half of the movie's worth of dialogue and have it sound Oscar worthy, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, he doesn't have a ton of dialogue, but at the same time, he's got like the, the, it's the creepy kid without it being like creepy kid. Cause he's sort of, everything in this movie is very, uh, wishy-washy as far as like what side of the fence it's supposed to land on, which works. It, it's it's very Lovecraftian in that way where it's like, it's not good, it's not evil, it's just sort of there, but it's weird. And it, some a lot of it doesn't make any sense and a lot of it is just not going to kind of tick all the boxes for you. And, and I think that Jack, 
to have a child actor have to do some of that stuff, but it's not just because he's being this weird, creepy kid, because at the same time, he'll have a scene like that, but then earlier in the movie, he's got a scene where he's, you know, he's legitimately scared of stuff, and he's got to portray that part yeah. of it as well. So, um, yeah, I, I By thought... By the way, that, yes. that was the creepiest hanging dinosaur diorama thing <laughs> I've ever seen. His pterodactyl that's, like, right over top of his bed? Yeah. Um, I don't know, or Pteranodon, whatever, whatever that's supposed to be. Um, yeah, you're not winning parent of the year, putting that in your kid's bedroom, uh, at all. Like, yes, here you go. Uh, never, never sleep again, child. Cause he's just staring up at that. And that's prior to the weird stuff happening. Yeah. That, that was before the color showed up. Right. Uh, and then Sheriff Pierce was played by Josh C. Waller, who I believe, uh, I will check, double check this, but I believe he was one of the producers of the movie. Um, yes, he was the producer of the movie. He played the sheriff. I'm just going to go find a cash machine. Hey, thank you for the subscribe. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, I... I I really enjoyed the cast of this movie. Like I just, I thought that they, everybody hit it out of the park. We didn't even mention Jolie Richardson. I mean, I mentioned her, but we didn't talk about her very much as, as the, the mom, Teresa, she's got, uh, she's got a few different layers to her because she's got the whole, uh, survival of cancer and this feeling of the, the line where she says she feels tarnished. And then, uh, Nathan says, you know, well, you'll always be my golden lady. Like, it's Jolie Richardson is great in, in everything I've ever seen her in. Um, but I, I, I felt for her in this because she had that, but then she would have the, these upset moments because they couldn't get the internet to work and she's got to do, she's still trying to do her job that she was probably doing in person a lot. Um, in my guess is they were in either Boston or New York prior to moving out there. Yeah, and she, uh, she was a city office worker and needed in her way internet and she lives in the middle of nowhere and I can relate. <laughs> it's true. You could. Um, she also has easily the most uncomfortable scene in the entire movie. And uh, there's no reason to beat around the bush. Oh. We're going to talk about this because. Oh, oh no. Oh, so here is kind of a, a great thing for me. So I've seen this movie a couple of times. You're watching it for the first time, but I get to watch it with you for the first time. So not only am I getting to have this conversation, but I got to witness your reactions to certain scenes. And this one oh, in particular yeah. was great because, so here's the scene set up for everybody. And if you haven't watched the movie, I really think you should watch it. I don't think us telling you about this scene, if you haven't, is going to lessen the impact of it because it's just that kind of a scene. But Well, I knew it was coming. Okay. I, I knew that this this scene was going to be a thing because you guys had talked about it last year when you saw the movie. Okay. Yep. That's right. Uh, so, so like, I knew that that was going to happen, and you're like, and oh, and the lead up for it was terrible, and you knew it was coming, and I'm looking at it like, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Like, this is <laughs> this this is coming. This is terrible. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm literally watching you like almost squirming in the in your chair, like like shifting back and forth, like oh oh, because the scene it it draws it out. But she's she's cooking dinner now. The backdrop to it is this is after the thing has landed, and the whole the whole rest of the family is out watching the news because they interviewed Nathan on the news. So he's standing there watching himself, and that scene that part of the scene is funny, right? Because he's like, 
oh, couldn't somebody have given me a comb? Like he's he's got Nick Cage hair going on, and it looks amazing. Oh, his hair is so bad, and they keep trying to paint him like a drunken hillbilly. Like yep. it was great. Yeah, and and then you cut back to uh, Teresa, and she's cooking dinner, and for the first thing she does is she cracks an egg and it's all, it's it got like blood and stuff inside the egg, which is gross. Um, and then it goes back out to the, the living room. It comes back to the kitchen and she's cutting up carrots. And that's when, that's when your brain is like, Oh, Oh, I know where this is going. Like this is a horror movie. We know what the end of this, this moment is going to be like what this is. Yeah. She's, to. she's chopping carrots. She's not paying, she didn't pay attention to the blood in the egg. So, you know, her brain is currently like turned off or in mm-hmm. zone mode or something. Yep. We know where this is going. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you're watching it, she's not uh, she doesn't have her knuckles curled, um, which if you learn how to cook, you're, you're taught to do that to keep yourself from cutting yourself. And then you're right. She's got the thousand yard stare. She's chopping almost angrily and quickly. And the camera keeps showing a shot of the knife and then cutting away and coming back and cutting away. And you're just like, I know what's about to happen. I don't want to see it, but I can't stop watching. And and it's just this tension build, tension build. And then, boom, as soon as the kid touches her, because um, Nathan tells Jack-Jack, you know, go get your mom. Because <clears throat> he keeps trying to call her, and she's just not paying attention. And that's the other part of it is, like you said, her brain's not there. She's, she's the engine's running, but nobody's behind the wheel. And yeah. Jack goes up and he touches her arm. And as soon as that happens, boom, cuts through her fingers. And you just see, and the thing is, it's a very quick shot, which that shot's practical effects were good, not great, in my opinion. Like they look good and they definitely serve the purpose that they're going for, but it's good that they cut away from it quickly. But I actually like that they cut immediately to Jack's reaction. And then he goes running out, dad, mom, mom cut herself, mom hurt herself. And then you just get the the moment where she turns around and just in the complete monotone deadpan says dinner's ready and holds up her hand and she's missing the end of two fingers. And then it cuts to like however long later where she's all wrapped up in a bandage and they're going to take off for the, for the hospital. But that, that whole, like the tension build, the, the blank look on her face. And then it's one of those where even though you know how the scene is going to end, it's still uncomfortable to watch. And that's a testament. Incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. And watching you shift and, and I can see it. I can see it in your face where I can see that, you know, what's going to happen, but you don't want to, and you don't want to see what's going to happen, but you can't stop watching. Um, it, it, I love that. I love that in a film because to be able to tip your hand and, and give everything away and it still be effective is impressive to do because it's, it's not easy. And it's just, it's an uncomfortable thing to watch. And, and it's one of those moments that, uh, is that psychological horror. Um, <clears throat> because you've got the whole family doesn't yeah. even know what's going on. So that's one of, that's kind of the first real turning point in the story is that moment with Teresa. Up until then, we've had very subtle things, very subtle things. And then we got kind of this big one. Um, and that's when the movie, yeah, it, the f- it, little, little subtle hints of, of things being not right or unsettling. And then, Oh yeah, she's just going to cut her hand off. <laughs> yep. Pretty much. Um, and so that's, that's the first turning point. Um, so then we get our, 
our family separated. So mom and dad are off to the hospital, which is an hour away. We've established that earlier in the movie because when the meteorite hit, um, Jack kind of was in shock at first, and then he was complaining about a headache. But uh, Nathan didn't want to take him to the hospital because it was an hour away. So, so now we know that it's at least an hour away, and mom is, you know, Teresa is missing the ends of two fingers. So this isn't going to be a quick in and out ER visit. Uh, she's going to be there for at least a little bit. So now we've separated. So Nathan and Teresa are gone, which leaves Lavinia and Benny and Jack at the house. And now that we've turned that corner is when things start getting really weird and we start playing around with um, kind of time and space a little. And you had mentioned while we were watching the movie, you're like, oh, I guess it's nighttime again. Oh, it's day again. Like this movie can't figure out time. And you're right. Yeah, couldn't. The, there was, yeah, there was no, there was no proper cuts. And then, and then, you know, as you're watching it more and you get your, your experiencing more of the movie, you realize, oh, this is all intentional. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. At first it does throw, it throws you off. Um, and this movie does a lot of that. And so, but yeah, once you kind of figure out, oh no, this is meant to be this way you sort of get drawn in because now now you're 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 getting into the the same situation as the people in it um where and and really there's only one moment that explicitly shows how the time passes we get a lot of it in uh cuts right between moments so we'll be we'll be with Nick Cage and it'll be daytime and then it will cut to um you know Benny and it's night or it'll cut to Ward at his campsite at night. And then it cuts back to somebody else and it's daytime again. And we keep kind of cutting back and forth, but there's a scene with Lavinia after everybody leaves, she's doing dishes. She walks in, puts the, the yellow gloves on to wash dishes. And it, the, the camera lingers on the clock and shows us what time it is. And I think it's like 20 after 11, something like that. Right. Um, and then as she starts to clean things, we get, the weird sound, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, um, and and all of this, and then a big flash of the color and the light, and then suddenly we see the clock again, and it's five hours later, and she's still standing in the same spot. And that's really the only time they explicitly show like time passage and time loss like that, but all, all the other characters keep talking about it. Um, there's a moment with Ward and Ezra where, where Ward is like, you know, I'll, I'll be back in the morning, and Ezra's just like, morning? It's already morning, man. Like, time is weird. Benny talks about getting being out in the woods, and then suddenly it was nighttime, and he couldn't find his way back. So there's all sorts yeah. of weird things going on. And not only that, but, like, stuff is happening way faster than it should be able to. Um, uh, Nathan, at one point, is harvesting his tomatoes and his peaches, which are all, like, a month early, he says. Um that was kind of a, uh, an interesting moment. And then, and then he goes to try them and they all taste horrible. So, you know, you've got crops and like there's flowers after the meteorite hits, there's this constant change to the landscape and we're getting more and more of uh, growth and flowers that are of this weird otherworldly color. So I suppose we should talk about that given that the movie is called color out of space. Um, and the color, yeah, we haven't mentioned magenta yet, so... Yeah. So the color that they chose to represent this otherworldly color, because in the story, um, all it is is, you know, these just this unknown color and, and sh- um, like, 
changes of color and the shining and all of this kind of stuff. Um, so this movie decided to go with magenta, and I'll let you explain why that's a good choice of a color to use. See, magenta is the color that doesn't exist. It's uh, color, you know, you, you learn color in school, and it's a color wheel, and you follow the wheel around. That's not how color works. Color is light, and light is a wavelength. Mm-hmm. And it's a line. It's an, it's an arcing line from the bottom of the spectrum to the top of the spectrum. And what magenta is, when you take the two ends of the spectrum and put them together, what you should see is those two wavelengths mixing, which should get you the middle of the spectrum, which is green. Mm-hmm. But your brain knows that that's not the wavelength for green. So your brain creates a new color with this distorted information. Yeah. So magenta is not a color that occurs in nature. It's not part of the visible light spectrum as we know it. Um, so it's a, it's a perfect choice to use in this. I did watch a video essay where somebody mentioned that it would have been interesting um, because the there was a uh, the mist in black and white um, was an interesting use of, of going black and white in a kind of a Lovecraftian type Stephen King horror thing, cosmic horror. Um, and, and this person had said, you know, Color Out of Space would have been interesting to do in black and white where, because there's no mention, nobody ever tries to describe the color. I think Cage might once say pink. Cage at the beginning, it's like, oh, it was this pink color, but oh, wait, no, it wasn't quite pink. It was a color I've never seen before. Yeah. So I I think the idea of this movie being in black and white is interesting in so much as like, it's called The Color Out of Space. So much is based around that, but I think you would have to you'd have to adjust your script to talk more about the color. Whereas this movie decided to use the visual of it, which it's a visual medium. So that makes sense. Um, but yeah, they chose magenta. And what I liked is from the moment that the um, meteorite hits, you know, the first sight of it we see is just a magenta dot and like ring in the atmosphere. And then it hits. We start seeing things like uh, at one point they're like, Hey, did you plant those flowers? And it's these magenta flowers. And we see that right around the, the well, because the well is sort of the central point of, um, of the, all the, the badness. Yeah. Like whatever was in the meteorite ended up in the well somehow. Um, and it's contaminating Even though the, the meteor water. didn't crash in the well. So you know, mm-hmm. that's a little weird too, but it is, you know, uh, that's a different argument. <laughs> right. Um, but we see like the flowers there and then every shot after that of the yard, there's more going on. There's more turning it this this magenta color all around. And we saw like even the purple vines growing up the trees. And we see more. We see the trees slowly changing their color as well as all the grass. There's a shot that has like uh, magenta mushrooms and all of this. But it also is still playing with time because this is happening quicker and quicker. It, it seems to be uh, like ramping up. Like at first it's a little bit, but as time goes on, because uh, the character Benny even mentions, you know, it, it, it distorts time like a black hole. And the closer you are to it, the more stretched out time gets. So I thought that was kind of cool. And, and it sort of makes sense then why things like when, when Ward and the sheriff go to Ezra's for the final time and they find him sitting there, he's decomposed a lot more than he should have been after a day. Because Ward was just there the day before. So there's some more of that kind of time yeah. thing going on. Like, 
time is weird now. Um, and then this color just keeps spreading. And then we get things like the, the little bug, uh, pr- praying mantis type creature that comes out of the well when Jack is standing by it. Um, which is, yeah, with too many legs and tentacles <laughs> coming out of its mouth, you know, that's uh, normal and totally healthy. Right. Yeah. F- I mean, first thing I noticed with that is like, that's got, that's got more legs than it should have. And then they do the close up of the face, which that was some CG that actually looked, it looked good. I wouldn't call it great, but it looked pretty good. And it was a cool little, little creature. Now the cat, the CG of it the cat. Believable. The road, yeah. The CG of the cat in the road wasn't, it wasn't particularly great. It wasn't particularly great, but you also only got to see it for like two seconds. So yes. they, they didn't try that hard on it because you knew they knew you weren't going to be looking too hard at it. Yeah, and this movie did a great job. So let's talk a little bit about these visuals because I think I think the CG used for most of the movie was pretty good. The cat notwithstanding, I thought maybe the the shots of the tree were again good, not great. Um but there was some interesting computer used like visual smudging and stuff especially right at the end in the climax that I thought was really really kind of cool. Um, gave it this weird, uneasy feeling. All of the CG that they did with the electronics, making all of the weird things that was happening with the electronics, I thought that that was all very well done Mm -hmm. and looked just like weird static. It didn't look like somebody was manipulating the image. Yeah, that was pretty cool how it was was getting into all of that. Um, Now, practical effects-wise, we had a few things that I thought were were quite well done. So there there is a moment in this where um, Benny and Jack go into the barn. Now, Nathan, Nicolas Cage, is raising alpaca. That's what he's got. That's what his animal is on the farm. And Benny and Jack go into the barn because the alpaca are making noise, and when they get in there, they see something going on and all we get is like little flashes we don't really see what it is but then the the color starts to glow and this light comes out of it so they run out well at that moment Teresa comes up and grabs Jack because he kind of fell down and they get hit by the light and they become fused and it's it's as weird as you would think um like it is so one of the things with Lovecraftian stories are these strange creatures. We, we get that in a lot of Cthulhu mythos stuff. Um, and usually in the books, especially in Lovecraft stuff, none of it was ever given like straight explanations or, or descriptions. Um, and they're always weird. And this was definitely one of those. We had a fusion of mom and child. Um, and I, I appreciated how they used that visual because they didn't show it right away. Um, and they didn't, I don't think they overly lingered on it. The more uh, at first, they never showed it clearly. No, they didn't. They always kept it in darkness in shadow, which is smart. Um, and what I liked about it was they were judicious in their use of it on screen, but it was always, you could hear it. And that, that was almost worse. The, the hearing, the gurgling in the, in the, noises that it was making and this this pained sound um and nephilim oh, the chat. sound in general for this movie was <laughs> like i want to use the word horrible but it was it was good for the movie but the sound was so bad and i don't mean from a production value standpoint i mean from a 
I don't want to listen to this sound anymore, man. Right, yes, and I definitely want to touch on that. Now, Nephilim in the chat mentioned that uh, it was thing level messed up, and you're right, it is. Um, and and it's that kind of stuff. So, like, the practical effects of that Teresa Jack amalgamation was really good. It was really good and really grotesque uh, in in every sense of that word. And it was hard to look at, but also, again, you you'd almost don't want to look away when there's there's scenes with that. And it evolved too. Um, it evolved from oh, yeah. on the couch until they go upstairs, and and you noticed, like you mentioned, oh oh, she's got like things growing off of her now and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like they they evolved the practical effects on, like first like when you first saw them on a the couch, they just looked like sickly gray. And then when they moved upstairs, she looked like worse. She looked more sickly and gray. And then they panned away and they panned back again. And then she had these like maggoty growths on her shoulder. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it's getting worse. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and you know, meanwhile, the almost the entire time you've got the sounds of Jack just groaning and moaning behind her and like trying to, trying to figure out what's going on. She can't, she can't really articulate, um, it's just, oof, it's rough. And then, you know, it ends up growing into the weird six-legged creature thing, um, which, yikes. Like, it, it was it was just, the practical effects of it were really well done. There's a lot of good practical effects. There's a lot of digital effects in this, which is impressive for a film with a $6 million budget. Because um, that's not a lot of money to use uh, on a film. And they, I think they, they got their money's worth on it in terms of like the look and a lot of the, the color look they can get through some color grading and, and things like that. Um, but what I liked is this, this slow buildup of kind of what they were doing visually with the film. And there's even subtle things that you don't notice when you're watching it, but if you catch some still frames you do. So I, I absolutely love the still frame of, Nicholas Cage getting out of the car after he's had his freak out moment and then he stands up and he's looking out and there's a shot that then switches around and is behind him so it's it's the car and the house and Cage standing next to it in front of the open door as he's just staring off at the at the landscape and that still frame is gorgeous it's it's haunting and just beautiful at the same time and I really really love that and if you look at it as a still frame, you realize that in the corners, there's that digital smudging going on that I didn't notice when I was watching it um, during the movie. But there's just this weird, like, so everything already looks strange. And then on top of that, you've got this, like, smudging effect going on in the corners of, of the screen, too. So subtle things like that, yeah. that that make you feel uneasy while you're watching this movie. Yeah, I didn't need help feeling uneasy watching this movie. Thanks. The the sound kind of did enough for me. Well, and and yes, and that's all by design, obviously. Um, they mean for that to be. There's this like high pitched dog whistles uh, kind of squealy noise that's prevalent through the movie from the from basically when the meteorite hits until the end. Um, and it 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 is. It's rough. It's rough to listen to. It's rough to hear over and over and over. Um, I'm really surprised, actually, that my dog didn't freak out about it, but it must just not have been 
either she, it doesn't bother her or it just wasn't quite to the frequency level that it would. But you're right. There's that. There's the the sounds that the creatures make. The the whole scene with the alpaca when they become kind of one giant thing beast of alpaca, um, and uh, like that's creepy. There's now one problem we did have was um, the the five point one audio mix squished down to stereo. Unfortunately, get some of the dialogue can get lost because the music and the sound effects end up being. Um, louder than the dialogue. You mentioned that early on when we were watching it. I think, on the whole, it wasn't a problem. There weren't. I didn't feel like there were too many times where we were missing lines of dialogue. Did you? There wasn't a lot, but there was a couple of times that I just couldn't hear what was said. Mm-hmm. Um, the the scene where the lightning is going nuts and striking the. Oh, yeah. year over and over again and, you know the daughter said the, the, there was lines happening between the daughter and Nicolas Cage and I didn't hear a single one yeah and that 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 isn't the movie so much as the transfer um, to and it being played stereo I don't have a great sound system so all you're getting is the speakers on my TV um, but but the sound design was just like phenomenal I, I really think it was and, and a movie like this needs that because the visuals are going to get you so far and they are, it's very visually arresting. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to take in. Um, not even talking about if you want to count all the Easter eggs in this movie, which I do want to mention a couple of those. Um, but just the visuals of it, there's so much going on. But the sound design adds this extra layer and makes it so much more. The scene we talked about earlier with her cutting her fingers is made so much more uncomfortable because of the sound design, how loud the sound is of that knife hitting the cutting board over and over. Um, They really crank that up and you've got this murmur of stuff going on in the background, but even when it's showing Nick Cage, you're still hearing that chopping sound and and stuff like that, or the, the sounds of the animals, um, when they're running around or this, the, these uncomfortable, uneasy noises that are coming from this, this color. Um, yeah. As I said, the sound wasn't bad. It was just grating. It, it, it was irritating and it was, it drew your attention to everywhere that needed to be done. The sound was used wonderfully in the way that it's supposed to be used Mm -hmm. and is suspenseful thing in a, in a movie such as that like it was used beautifully but it just it was difficult to listen to <laughs> yes yep it's done and i think that was by design <laughs> yep it's competently produced and meant to be uncomfortable to listen to and it definitely pulled that off um and and i like the music too i think the music in this was was really good it fit the the overall feel of things like nothing felt out of place I don't know that it was particularly memorable in so much as like there isn't a, I can't pick a tune out or like a theme. I, I, I don't remember any of the music, but any of the music that I heard apparently fit the scene because none of it sounded out of place or wrong. Yeah, I feel like a good film score, when a film score is good, it's going to do one of two things. It's going to be Howard Shore's Lord of the Rings score right where you can pick these moments and these melodies out of it or uh, or a John Williams score or it's going to kind of almost blend in to where it you don't think about it 
but that's not a bad that like not in a bad way. It's just it's not it's not hindering things. It's fitting the mood. It's creating the the emotional feeling that you want without having to necessarily be something that you're going to hum to yourself or run out and buy. Although I would totally throw on the uh, this this musical score as like I'm working on a project and I want to have some music going. So I do like it for that. I just I, I think the music was was well done in this, and the sound design is just top notch. Especially again, I have to reiterate, this is a movie made for six million dollars in 2018. So this isn't a, a six million dollar yeah. film from the 80s or the 90s. This is only a couple of years old, um, starring you know somebody at the level of Nicolas Cage. He he gets paid, and you know these aren't completely no name actors. Jolie Richardson's had a good career. You know Tommy Chong. Tommy Chong, they might have been able to get for cheap. Who knows? But, um, but it's a yeah. small cast too. We mentioned yeah. basically the whole cast. There's like two other people that show up on screen, pretty much. Three. There's three other people that show up on screen. There's the 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 mayor. Oh yeah. Uh, the 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 chick that was in the mayoral building mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. talked mm-hmm. to um, Ward. And then there was the hunter dude that found the mangled corpses. Oh yeah, yep. Um, yeah, and okay. oh wait, and, and the TV the the, the TV news actress. Lady, That's right, the, the reporter, newscaster. Yep. So just as it's a small cast, which helps to keep the cost down, and and what I like about that is then that lets them put the money into the look and the feel of the movie. And I did read. Uh, now, IMDb trivia, so grain of salt, but um, that Josh Waller actually made sure that everybody on the crew were people that Richard Stanley hadn't worked with before. I think it's an interesting idea behind that. Um, I'm not sure what the reasoning was. I'll see if I can find the, the trivia bit again, but it, it, I want to say it had something to do with um, kind of keeping him uh, keep, keeping him in line or, or, or not letting him work with like, yes, people like people that he had worked with before. Um, okay. And, uh, room. Okay. Here we go. Producer Josh C. Waller removed all of Richard Stanley's previous collaborators from the project. So Stanley had to work with mostly complete strangers. He stated that this was for the better in the end, as he felt he had uh, a better or more sympathetic crew. So maybe Richard Stanley's tough to work with. I'm not sure. Um, I know, that I did read. So as I mentioned, this was his first film, uh, feature-length film that he's made since he worked on The Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, but uh, recently, Richard Stanley... So when he, uh, when he started this, um, Stanley had uh, a plan to make a trilogy of Lovecraft films. Um, he was going to do, I think it was this, and then... Um, I think it was Dunwich Horror was going to be the next one, followed by, I don't remember what the third was going to be, but he basically wanted to make a uh, a trilogy of films around this. And uh, he's writing, he was writing an adaptation, but uh, unfortunately he had uh, allegations of domestic abuse in March of this year. And after that, um, Spectravision, who was the production company behind this, uh, behind Color Out of Space, said they wouldn't work with him anymore. So... As you do. Yeah. Um, so we may not ever get to see uh, his trilogy of films, which, okay, 
number one, this is not said in a way to be dismissive of what happened to him, but it's unfortunate that we're not going to get to see those because I do think he has an interesting vision. Saying that, if if it's true that he was um, Scarlett or, uh, Amaris who co-wrote this and was um, co-wrote Color Out of Space and uh, was his uh, partner, alleged in a blog post of an abusive relationship, and she had filed a complaint uh, regarding him. And um, so... Yeah, I mean, if he's if he's domestically abusing uh, his partner, that's not cool, and he shouldn't get work. So, exactly, and it's, maybe she should come back and write the scripts for another director to take the other two movies on. Yeah, that could be good too. I mean, I, I would like that because if she co-wrote this, I think the script was pretty well written, given given what it was trying to do, which is adapt Lovecraft, which is not a not an easy thing to do, and b I think. I think his Lovecraft. It's also not easy to modernize it as well, right? Which is what they did here, and and I think like Lovecraft is not an easy thing to adapt because so much of it plays on our fear of the unknown and this nihilistic approach to to the world. You told me a story about uh, somebody. Tell me this, the ant story again, or or tell tell the listeners that. Oh, that was really. uh, I, I was. Looking up stuff because I'm thinking of running uh, Call of Cthulhu, our role-playing game, right? With the group, I, I picked up the game system. I'm enjoying reading about the game system. I've I've read one of the modules and I have access to like four more. Um, so I've been doing some research into this, and I ran into a couple of things on the internet talking about madness and dealing with madness and Lovecraftian horror. And madness isn't like oh, I just snapped and decided to start killing people. Madness is, imagine that you're an ant, okay? You're an ant doing ant things, and an ant, they walk up and they find, like, you know, a circuit board. That's not going to blow their little ant mind. It's just going to be something that's weird architecture that they walk through or whatever. But if you take that ant and suddenly that ant grants is gained consciousness mm-hmm. and now thinks like a human being and has feelings and feels love and hate and anger and understands all of these concepts. And then you take that feeling away from the ant, but that ant still has that memory. So it knows that there's this thing that's just out of reach that it can't quite grasp anymore, but it's know that it knows that it's there and it wants to find it again. And it's telling all of its little ant buddies about it. And it's ant buddies are just like, dude, what are you talking about? (laughs) That's madness. That's Lovecraftian breaking of the psyche. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that uh, I've seen several Lovecraft-inspired um, movies and stories, and I think what works best for them. In fact, I've covered a couple on this show. In the Mouth of Madness was one of them. Um, that's not a adaptation of Lovecraft, but it's very Lovecraft-inspired because um, John Carpenter is a big fan. It's hard to do well because it's just not the types of stories that translate to visuals easily what this movie managed to do and why i think it's one of the better ones that i've seen is that it didn't overly rely on the otherworldly visuals and instead played with perceptions and played with kind of what we what we think we're seeing versus what we are seeing there is still that weird body horror that goes on but it's not i don't feel like it's overly used there's maybe you could cut the shot of the uh, the mass of alpaca um, a little bit, and it is just as uh, as compelling. But 
you know, that's nitpicking. Like when I'm talking about trimming seconds off of a shot, that's very nitpicky. Like there isn't a moment yeah. in this where I'm just like, nope, that's, I don't need to see that at all. Like what they used works. And then on top of that, I feel like this really hit that, uh, the nail on the head of the, like, it's just weird and it makes no sense and we can't wrap our heads around it because it's ever, it's affecting everybody differently too. Like, and we the, can't do anything about it. We can't, mm-hmm. there's nothing that we could do to interact with this thing, to tell it to leave or make it stop. It's just, it's a thing it's existing and it's having influence on things. Cause it's not from around here. Mm-hmm. It doesn't care that it's doing this. Right. It doesn't care that it's messing us up, but there's nothing that we can do about it either. Yeah. Yep. It's not malevolent, nor is it benevolent. It's just there and it doesn't really pay us any mind. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting that way. And, and I just, I loved how, I loved how the, the color affected, cause it's not just a visual thing. The color is an entity of itself and it affected different characters differently. So, uh, Nathan, Nick Cage is, he smells, he's got this smell that he's getting all the time. And then, um, at first it's really, really strong to the point where he's covering his nose. And then when he comes out of the shower, which, uh, was also a very weird moment with that little puck of like goo, um, that he found, he comes oh, yeah, out of the grew tentacles and grabbed his hand. Yeah. That yeah. was creepy. Yeah. Um, and then he comes out of the shower and like everything smells bad to him. And this is when he's, he's starting to slip. Um, so he's very affected with, uh, with that. You've got the, that screeching sound seems to really be hurting Lavinia and really messing with her head. And then she gets physically ill and throws up from it. Benny is, uh, definitely most affected by the changes in time, which also fits with his character who was studying black holes and NASA footage and all that kind of stuff. Like that was what he was into. So that's how it affected him. Um, and Jack is sort of just affected by everything um, because he doesn't really have like a, a specific way. And I thought that was kind of cool. Like here, you know, we get introduced to the character of Benny as where is he? We haven't seen him for hours. Right. So it's clear that he doesn't have a good concept of time. He just gets high and wanders off and hangs out with, with the dog, Sam. So what part of this affects him the most? The time stuff. Then we get Lavinia, yeah. who we see repeatedly in scenes with headphones in listening to music. That's how she deals with stuff. When she has the run-in um, with her mom uh, early on in the movie where the mom basically says, you know, you're throwing yourself at this guy and look at how you're dressed type of thing, doing the the very uh, conservative mom routine, and it upsets her. Yeah. What she do? Yeah. She runs up to her room, she puts in her music, and that's how she gets away. So now it's auditory that's affecting her. And then, um, you know, the different. So I liked that. I liked how everyone was getting affected in different ways. And in the end, it just happened. And it happened, and there wasn't anything anybody could do about it. At one point, Lavinia almost. We don't know if she gave up. Was she compelled to stay? what happened while Ward walked over to, to Ezra's and came back that caused her to go from being essentially okay, but caring for her father who had just been shot to now she's fully uh, engulfed in the color and her eyes are colored up and she's, she's having visions of whatever dimension or planet this thing came from that we, we assume is another dimension or another planet. We, you know, there's no real way to, to know exactly what's going on, but that's what I like about uh, kind of Lovecrafting stories is we just don't know 
and we don't need to, and we're not told. It's just this, we get to interpret it and, and figure it out on our own. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is why this adaptation makes it so much better than the 87 movie, The Curse, which was fun, but didn't capture Lovecraft well. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've seen, I've seen some of the, like, uh, reanimator captures parts of Lovecraft, but also changes it a lot. Um, uh, the curse or, uh, the void was another one that's very Lovecraft inspired. Some of them get parts of it, right? I just feel like, I feel like this for me anyways, to date, probably my favorite adaptation of Lovecraft, uh, is going to be this and in the mouth of madness. Those are kind of my two favorites because I feel like they capture the spirit of, of what I, what I get when I read, when I would read Lovecraft stories. Um, so if you haven't read his stuff too, I think it's worth reading. Get, even even though like Howard Phillips Lovecraft wasn't a good person, um, he definitely had a lot of flaws, um, and there's a lot. No, he, of, he was incredibly racist. He was he was very sheltered, very racist, very nihilistic, um, very self loathing. Like he wasn't a good uh, altruistic person by any stretch, but he had some talent to his writing. Um, he also wasn't subtle uh, in his writing. Another thing, too, um, I will say, so while I think this is my favorite Lovecraft adaptation in a film, Lovecraft Country on HBO Max is also incredible. And if you haven't watched that yet, watch it, because I think it's really, really worth your time. Um, so that's another really good Lovecraft adaptation um, that's based off of uh, a novel and not a Lovecraft novel, but inspired by and definitely takes place in that world. And we have to talk a little bit about some of the Easter eggs because uh, there's so many of them uh, and they're so great. Oh, 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 one other thing I have to mention. So um, I do have a few clips I do want to play because it's Nick Cage and there's always good Nick Cage moments to, to talk about. But Well, if had... it's Nick Cage much and you don't play a Nick Cage sound clip, what are you even doing? This is very true. You, you have me there. Uh, but when he has the freak out in the car, right, and then he comes back inside and he says, you know, the car is not happening, and, and he says something drained the battery, I noticed something on this watch through, and it was because of something you said. I don't think the car not starting was the effect of the color in this case. I think everything else going on was, but I think the car, my personal uh, kind of impression of it is that the car's battery died because he left the lights on. Because if you remember, when he when oh, they yeah, come he home, had, he just had he just had the lights on in the car. Who leaves the car lights on like that? Yeah, you said that as we were watching. Like, who leaves the car lights on? And I hadn't thought about that. But he never. They never showed him turning them off. And then the next morning, he goes to start the car and it won't start. So that is one of the few things I think that wasn't an actual effect of the color, and it was just that he left that there, um, left those lights on all night. Because I've done that, and then my car don't start. So. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I have some clips. I, I have to play them because this, again, it's Nick Cage month. I'm going to play Nick Cage stuff. Now, first, um, I have a few that are not Nick Cage, uh, involved. I liked this because this was very much, uh, I've heard this from other, um, people that have been interested in Wicca before. Um, and this was when early on, uh, Benny says, Oh, did you, did you manage to curse the family? And Lavinia's like, I don't do curses. They come back on you times three. You know, I've heard that before. So yeah. like, ah, that's kind of cool. I like that. Um, I also thought it was funny. Again, the 
here is the uh, the one that's out doing um, doing incantations in the woods wants uh, wants bottled water in McDonald's and doesn't like the French food that her dad makes, which is cassoulet. And she describes it as it's a traditional French dish. Mm, in other words, peasant food. <laughs> I just love the the. Oh. Der- Oh, yes, peasant food. Yeah, the derision in her voice when she says that is so good. Um, and I I liked the the dynamics between characters in this. Like we talked about um, Nathan and Teresa in that scene on the on the porch and kind of kind of what happened there. But I also liked the banter back and forth between Benny and Lavinia because there was like uh there's definitely a love and respect between the two of them but they also butted heads a lot and i this one was my favorite i'm not your barn bitch actually you are <laughs> oh the their particular dialogue was was typical it, it like i had zero problems believing that those two were brother and sister like yeah that's sibling bickering right there mhm absolutely um oh this creepy creepy line dinner's ready yeah yeah just, I hear it and I can just picture, I, I see the frame of her and her holding up her hand with like fingers missing. It's just, yeah. um, and then I got two Tommy Chong uh, quotes because it's Tommy Chong. You might see her, but I don't think you'll recognize her. Talking about his cat, G-Spot, which that's a pretty funny joke. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him well, a It's a pretty good name for a cat. Yeah. Um, but then this is a quote that, I think most of the people listening to this are going to get because we're all old enough to remember. Um, but I love this because this is definitely, it makes sense that Ezra would refer to it this way. Like this is perfectly an Ezra moment. See, I knew no one would believe me unless I got it on Memorex. He doesn't say I would knew nobody would believe me unless I recorded it. He has to say, I got it on Memorex, right? That's totally like yeah. an old stoner. That's how he would think of things. And uh, for those kids out there who aren't old enough to remember cassette tapes, um, Memorex was a huge uh, cassette tape manufacturer in the 70s and 80s. And they had their their whole thing of, is it live or is it Memorex? Um, Which, okay, look, cassette tape never sounded as good as a live performance. But, you know, it was good marketing. Um, But I I just love that line. (laughs) Nobody would believe me unless I got it on Memorex. Because it's just like that... To me, that's good writing because um, I definitely have met people that would talk about it in that way. So now we get to the Nick Cage stuff. Um, this was him. Okay, so early in the movie, he talks about his dad and he uses this voice as his father. And it was, You're never going to be a painter, Nathan. And that accent... Uh, for anybody that's listened to this show or knows Nick Cage, that accent is very much the accent he was using in um, Vampire's Kiss. It's sort of British, but not. It's this weird New York... Uh, I don't even know how to describe what the accent is, but he does that. It, he does, It's a weird accent, but it it's is. noticeable. Yes, and he does that talking about his father. Well, then later on, he... Um, he kind of starts adopting it as he snaps. When he goes from being like loving father to angry dude, that's the accent he's using. And that's one way to kind of tell where he is mentally and in any moment in a scene is what accent is he using? Is he talking like normal Nick Cage or is he uh, kind of flipping out? And so he uses that. Um, Let's see. Here is, oh, this one. 
Now, if you don't mind, it's time we milk the alpacas. Milk the what? Uh, and I shortened up the gap there. There's a longer pause. Um, there's, a, there's a very long pause. He just, he just stands there and stares off, and then he goes, wait, milk the what? <laughs> but, you know, only Nick Cage is going to deliver a line like, milk the alpacas. Um, so I, I love that. Uh, let's see. This one's not my... They're not my family. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, whew. That was, uh, that was a moment in the movie. Um, so that is where he yeah, shot. it was. He, sh- he shoots the, uh, the Teresa Jack monster, uh, and then says, they're not my family and leaves. And this is right after a moment. Um, and I didn't capture this because it was kind of hard with, with background noise going on in it where he's lost it. He's flipped and he's talking to Ward and the sheriff and the ward is like, where's your wife? And he goes, she's sitting right here. And he points to the couch and there's nobody in the couch. He's like, the whole family's here. Everyone. What's that? Oh, except for Benny. Benny lives in the well now. Like creepy. But, um, it's after that when he goes upstairs and he shoots what, what was his wife and son mixed together. Uh, he says, that's not my family. Like, okay. All right. You've, you've completely lost it now. That's cool. Um, Good to know where we stand. Yep, yep. Here's uh, here's the car bit. The uh, car is not happening. <laughs> the car is not happening. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I got I got a kick out of that one. Um, uh, oh, here we go. Here's uh, here is uh, Dad Cage voice. They should have been put back in the barn hours ago. You haven't even fed them yet, have you? Hours ago. That one is a good one. Um, I got two more here. Uh, we've got, um, oh, the drink. I mentioned this earlier. Drink. I'm having one. <laughs> yes. oh. Yeah. And finally, uh, we have this. So do me a favor and get the f*** out of my sight, okay? No, no, actually, I'll save you the trouble and get the f*** out of yours. Uh, that is. I, I don't even know what he's doing, but that is such a weird accent. It is. Now, again, it's what he used in Vampire's Kiss, and uh, that apparently is Richard Stanley's favorite Nicolas Cage film, so he asked him to do that in this movie. He, he wanted him to use that, that accent. Um, and, I mean, it works, right? Like, it's, it's weird, and it makes no sense, but it also gives you an idea of, oh, okay, we're getting crazy Nick Cage now. Like he's about to he's about to go off the deep end. So it worked for me. Um but yeah that's that is uh that is clips for this movie and and look, it's Nick Cage. It's it's Nick Cage getting to go crazy. Um this movie, I like it. I like it quite a bit. I've seen it now because I watched it in the theater and I've watched it twice since then, but once was for for this show. So I've seen it like three times. Um but I, I really enjoy it, uh, and and you seem to uh, to like it as a film, even if it is uncomfortable to listen to and to watch at parts. Uh, it, like it, for what it is, it was enjoyable, and knowing that what you're getting into and understanding that, like it was worth it and good, and I would recommend to other people watch it. But uh, yeah, you're you're going to be a little uncomfortable while you watch it. Be aware. Yeah, it's not an easy movie to watch. But if you're uh it's not an easy movie to watch if you're not used to that that style of film. But I think if you're a fan of Lovecraft, if you're a fan of Cage, 
Um, and if you like horror movies, especially kind of cosmic psychological horror stuff that, that doesn't have to make sense, this is a good one to watch. Uh, I think you'll really, you'll really get something out of it. You definitely want to be, yes, Faye, you want to be prepared for what you're getting into, which is weird. It's going to be weird. It's not going to make a lot of sense. Nothing is explained. The movie just sort of ends. It has this big climactic moment. And then it shows Ward standing on top of a hydroelectric dam like, well, that happened years ago, and I hope the water stays nice and deep and buries all of that. But anyway, I'm going to leave now. Um, and that's, but I'm never going to drink it. Yeah. But I like the open-ended nature of it because, again, it, it, it gives me the feeling like when I got done reading uh, a Lovecraft novel or a Lovecraft story, which is it doesn't matter. And it doesn't make any sense, and things just move on. It's a very nihilistic approach to things. Um, so it's totally worth seeing. Uh, I definitely recommend it. I'm glad you finally got to see it, because I know you didn't get to go when we went to the theater to watch it. Um, and, I did not. And that was a bummer, and so I'm glad that you finally got to watch it. Again, so. I, I enjoyed it. I'm glad that I watched it. It's just, it was uncomfortable but uncomfortable in a good way i guess i'm sure. not really sure if there's a good way to be uncomfortable but it is it is uncomfortable in the way that you expected it to be maybe that maybe that makes a little bit yes. more sense um what i'm hearing is that you enjoyed it as a film but maybe you're not rushing to watch it a second time uh no i don't i don't <laughs> think i need to watch it again um yeah, there's some there's some stuff in there that I would probably notice if I watched on a second or a third viewing. But I, you know, you know I don't need to to rush that. <laughs> uh, I'll leave that um, that trivia finding for another time. Sure, absolutely, I understand that completely. Uh, so this has been uh, Color Out of Space in Week One of Cage of Palooza 2021. Uh, now we're nowhere near done. We've got uh, four more Sundays to record this show. I record every Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time at twitch.tv slash Travis, where you can hang out in the chat room and be like Kippy Darkma or Nephilim1977 or Phelan or Daniora. Hang out in the chat and talk to us. Uh, I read the chat throughout the whole show. Um, now, next week, I have uh, 9 of 12, uh, September McCready from Geek Grills is going to come on, and we're going to talk about Season of the Witch. Um, I haven't seen this one before, I don't think she had either. And, uh, and I'm, this is one of those that is, that is on that Nick cage pile of like, what was he thinking doing this one? This one's one of those so bad. It's probably good, but maybe really, really bad. Um, I don't know. I'll let you know in a week, but that's next week's movie. Uh, as we continue our cage of Palooza and, and I'm looking forward to it because I hear, I've heard a lot about this one and I think it has Ron Perlman in it too, which I'm sold. Nick Cage and Ron Perlman. Oh, let, let me some Ron Perlman. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm pretty excited about that, and uh, and the rest of this month is going to be great too. You guys are going to really enjoy it. Um, so so definitely, if you can come hang out, uh, if if you can't make it live, that's fine. You can still listen to this as a podcast. It comes out on Wednesdays. It hits the feed, um, and the you can get it anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, unfortunately, the name "Wait You Haven't Seen" with with quotation or with uh, with question marks and stuff in it can be tough to search for. So, there's two ways to get around that. The first is go to tvstravis.com and then you can find the subscribe button from there. You can drop it into your favorite podcatcher, or you can go. There's a direct link into iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever. You also can uh, leave a rating and or a review. 
um, on your favorite podcasting platform. And that makes the show more discoverable for other people who might just be searching, looking for movie discussion podcasts or podcasts on specific, uh, a specific topic. Um, so, uh, if you do rate and review, I appreciate it wholeheartedly. And, uh, and I love you all. Um, so yeah, so next week, uh, we're doing season of the witch and I can't wait for it, but Charlie, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always great having you on. Um, glad to be here. Yeah. So again, season of the witch is next week. Um, get out or stay home. Enjoy your movies either way and uh, be excellent to each other. you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>